Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Derek Cephas of counsel at Squire Patton Boggs. Derek has more than 40 years of experience as a financial services lawyer, with particular emphasis on the regulation of U.S. and non-U.S. banks, bank holding companies, and their affiliates. Please enjoy. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to see you, Delsa. So, Derek, you've had more than 40 years of experience as a financial services lawyer. And I'd like for you to just take us back to the beginning. What did you think you wanted to do when you were a kid? Well, first of all, I never thought I'd be a financial services lawyer. As a kid, I was really interested in science and math and all that sort of thing. And then the civil rights movement came along. And then oh, lots of public policy issues came to the fore. And I was involved in the civil rights movement. Lawyers played a very large role in the civil rights movement. And so I saw these people with this particular set of skills as being able to influence public policy, have important roles, get things done, push the agenda, form the agenda. And so I said, well, you know, this science and math is all very nice, but I'm going to go where I think I would be much more interested in where the action is. And I got very energized about public policy, civil rights, and what lawyers do. That kind of got me focused on that. And, you know, no one in my family was a lawyer, so I kind of had to figure out how to get from here to there. But that's what attracted to me to the law, I would say, when I became a teenager. When I was in elementary school, I was all about math and science. Glad I made that change. No, I hear you. So let's talk about that. You said nobody in your family was a lawyer, so you had to figure out how to get from here to there. What did you do? Well, you know, I was lucky. So I went to prep school in New England for a year at Exeter. Then I went to college. And then when I was in college, I got around an environment where, you know, education was a high priority. Lots of lawyers around, lots of my friends whose families, whose fathers were lawyers, and took a lot of courses about pre-law, history, political science, government. And by the time I was in college, the path was pretty clear. We had a pre-law function in my dorm, pre-law opportunity. So by the time I got to college, the professional path of being a lawyer was pretty well charted. And basically, all you had to do was kind of say, this is what I'm interested in, sign up and take the course load. So it actually was once I got into college and all of that, it was pretty straightforward. Right. And then you progressed, as we all know from your bio. I mean, you served as the superintendent of banks for the state of New York, as the head of New York State Banking Department, which is now referred to as the New York Department of Financial Services or DFS for short. So how does that experience serve you in the work that you do for clients today? Well, it's actually been very helpful. One thing is that When I was there, I learned a lot about how the regulatory system worked. I learned a lot about both internationally, made a huge set of contacts in the regulatory system in the U.S., but also the U.K., France, Germany, Japan, Korea. Learned how regulators think, learned how public policy decisions are being made. And so it gave me a much broader sense of the regulatory scheme and in advising clients just 
you know, how to get from what the client's objective is, how to kind of dovetail that as best you can with what the regulator's objective is, and then to come to a solution that sort of works for everybody. Now, sometimes that's easy. If the client wants to do something that's consistent with the regulations, then you just go through the whole process. I've been involved in a lot of enforcement actions where getting on the same page is not quite as easy, and also cutting new ground where you are trying to do something that's not prohibited by the regulations, but also not explicitly permitted anywhere, but have been able to develop those kinds of relationships and also to develop an understanding of what the regulatory system is trying to accomplish. And so to try to get your objective representing your client to fit into a box that the regulators feel comfortable with and feel and are familiar with, a lot of that I learned by being very much a part of that when I served as superintendent of the banks. And also just having the confidence of the regulators. They know I'm not going to bring them anything crazy. I'm not going to bring and come and suggest something way off the wall. At least I have enough credibility that if I come to the table with something, it's plausible. It makes sense. It may be further than they've gone in the past. It may raise a new issue or a novel issue, but it is something within the bounds of normal regulatory parameters. So being a regulator at the highest levels, you know, New York, being a superintendent of New York, which is the premier banking state, gave us a seat at the table at the OCC, the Fed, the FDIC, and all the foreign regulators. Because remember, the very, very large number of big international banks that maintain branches and agencies in New York. And we regulate all of those. So it was a good platform. Excellent. And then... When you fast forward and you look back on the fact that you have this long career, what advice do you have for our listeners about longevity and how to not just survive, but thrive in financial services? I would say a few things. One, be flexible, be adaptable, have a certain capacity as an individual to kind of go with the flow because, you know, in the job market, things change all the time. Secondly, I would say develop an expertise. I mean, one of the things that I tried to do was to be a real expert, deep expertise in one subject matter. And for me, that's depository institutions and their affiliates, banks, bank holding companies and their affiliates. And now what I'm going to say is sort of contradictory, develop a lot of breadth. So the kind of lawyer I tried to be was to know a lot about a lot of things, but to be a real expert in my niche. And so that makes you pretty valuable as a lawyer. Also, I think maintaining a broad range of relationships and contacts, because in this industry, and I'm sure in your industry and in most industries, the same people are around for years and years and years and years. And so you might be at one point an adversary to that person. The next year, you might be on the same team with them. But I think to maintain a perspective of respect for other people, even if you're in competitive situations, so that at least you have a reputation as someone who can be trusted and someone who people can work with and someone who tries to get the job done rather than being an obstructionist or somebody who's uh, difficult to work with. I also try to, over the years, stay in very close touch with people in my field And a lot of people in my field, a lot of them are retired now, which I'm not going to do, but a lot of people in my field, I've known 25, 30, 35 years, and we see each other less frequently now, well, because one of the pandemic and also some are retired, but I've always stayed in touch over the years with the coterie of banking lawyers and senior bank executives, trade group folks in the banking business and all of that. So I think having expertise, having breadth, maintaining contacts and relationships, and try to be a reliable person, a person that, you know, you do what you say. And at least people will have a certain view of you as 
someone who can be trusted and who knows what they're doing, and you can work with them. So I would say that this relationship between expertise and breadth is very important because if you have a tremendous amount of expertise and no breadth, you have on blinders because then something is going to come your way that doesn't fit quite with how you look at the world or how you look at things. And if you don't have the breadth, you won't know how to filter it. You won't know how to evaluate it. And if you're very broad and no expertise, you'll know a whole lot of things. But people look for experts nowadays. So I think that both of them, and to some extent, maybe they're contradictory, but I think both of those are equally important to really being a good lawyer, a good counselor, a good problem solver, you know, is what, what lawyers do. They solve problems. I like the way you phrased it. It's also the way I think about the work that I do as well as a financial services consultant, because although I may have my area of expertise, I focus on risk management, governance and compliance, but I may pull from different things depending on the situation, depending on the client, whether I'm doing a BSA, AML, risk assessment analysis, or whether I'm helping to liquidate a branch. You know, there are different skill sets that I'm looking at, but it's all still within the risk umbrella. It definitely resonates with me, this whole idea of having an area of expertise, but still having some breath. And let's face it. I mean, I think nowadays in financial services, things change so quickly. You need to make sure that you have more than one tool in your toolkit and you don't want to be a one trick pony. So I totally agree. I think all of that makes sense. And, you know, the other thing is just following up on what you're saying. You might be presented with a problem and it might be explained as A, B and C. And once you kind of delve into it, the real problem may be X, Y, and Z, not A, B, and Z. So A, B, and Z may be a minor thing, but once you hear all the facts, there's a real big other issue out there. So I think the breadth and experience of seeing a lot of things and also coming to something with kind of an open mind and rather than already, you know, decide in the first 10 minutes what the issue is, think about it, you know, let it sit, let it percolate. And, and the breadth is very helpful. I'll have bank regulatory problems or I have structuring problems, bank holding company act issues, and I'll resolve the question presented to me. Then I'll, you know, it occurred to me, there might be a tax issue kind of hidden in here. It seems to me that you're moving all these assets around and I don't know the answer, but talk to the tax guy because you might be causing yourself an issue here that you don't want to trip over. So I know enough about tax to kind of when I see a tax issue, I know the question and not the answer. So I refer them to that kind of thing. And that comes from not just being open, but also listening, right? right? So I think the other thing that you're saying is making sure that you have the skills to really listen with an open mind right. so that you are thinking about what other potential situations could be causing the problem. It's almost like root analysis in a way. You're listening with an ear for what else could be causing the situation. Listening is so, so important because you learn so much from this is what other people have to say how they explain a problem, or, you know, their own experience in kind of tackling with a problem, dealing with a problem. We are all trying to get to the same result. We're trying to get to the best result. But, you know, listening is also a very important skill. Now, you are one of the many people I know that made a move during the pandemic. So you're now at Squire. What has that been like for you? Well, it hasn't been easy. It's a lot better now. So when I got here, I came on December first or second, whatever that Monday is. And me and the office manager, we're the only people here. You know, I moved all my stuff, my boxes, my files, and, and I was also actively involved in a couple of matters. But the firm was on a remote work schedule. So I had to keep my legal practice going and I had to do that in a baseline empty office. And so it was a challenge. People were 
great, except they were all remote. I met a lot of clients remotely. So, I mean, it's that flexibility thing again. It worked out, but I have to say it was it was a challenge. And even though I had a tremendous amount of support from the firm, you know, I stayed with it. But doing all of that remotely in an office, I mean, sometimes I would come here, there'd be nobody here. I don't really work so well at home. I'm hopelessly inefficient at home. I was trying to at least, you know, have some kind of a normal life as much as you could during that time. So that made me feel a whole lot better about everything. To go to my desk and go to my office and it was over and then I'd go home. But it made a big difference to me to have some place to go and also to have a lot of things to do. I was so happy then I was very busy. Some level of normalcy to it. I can definitely relate to that. And everybody, I, I guess, adjusted slightly differently. Like for me, I wasn't commuting into the office location per se, but I did create a space within my home yep. that is my office environment so that I know that when I'm in this room, I'm in work mode. And, yep. and I think that that helped to just kind of like separate the whole transition, right, from being in, in my work environment to like, my work mode. I think everybody deals with it slightly differently. I don't mind the commute though. Different people dealt with it differently. I had even during the worst days of the pandemic, the winter of 2020, like in March and April and all that kind of thing. I had a client and we used to meet in Central Park and stand 10 or 15 feet apart with the mask on and talk about our business. Sometimes we'd walk and sometimes we'd sit at opposite ends of, the, of a bench or on two different benches. And talk about our business. To me, I like that more than, you know, remoteness. It was the best you could do, but it was better than nothing. Gotcha. Interesting. Shifting gears for a moment, I know you've been involved in a number of boards and currently you serve as director of Signature Bank and the Hartford Family of Mutual Funds. And in the past, you've been on several other boards, including the Dime Savings Bank of New York, Merrill Lynch International Bank, and D. Shaw Company. How did you start serving on boards? And, and what advice would you have for those of us who have interest in serving in a for-profit board? Good question, Dilja. I'll go back to something I said a minute ago about longevity in my career. And I think those kinds of things, having an expertise, having a broad range of relationships, having a breadth of knowledge in a lot of different areas, staying in touch with people, I think all of those make you a credible candidate for a board. And then I think a lot of it comes down to relationships that you have professionally. Of all the boards I've served on, you know, I never once applied for one. Every case, I think, it was somebody who I knew either at the company or they knew a senior person at the company or they were already on the board themselves or they knew someone on the board and they said, oh, your name came up. You know, I suggested you for something. This might be something you're interested in. You know, this is up your alley. To have the expertise and the professional standing is one thing. And the second thing is people need to know you and people need to have worked with you before or know somebody who has worked with you before. And you have that kind of personal credibility and people will, will suggest you. But I do think that having the skills and the qualifications and the background and the expertise makes you a credible candidate. And then it's just a question of somebody noticing you or knowing you and understanding that you would be a good candidate for a particular board. I mean, one thing is people want to work with people who they're comfortable with, who they know and who, has, who they've had some experience with. So I just think that having a broad range of professional relationships is also important. And one of the things is, you know, I remember when I came out of law school in 1979 and, you know, we were all first year associates somewhere. 
and the people who I knew from college who went to the banks and went to the investment banks. So we were all first year, right? You look up 10 years ago later, this guy's a partner. This guy's a head of a big division at a big bank. And then you look up in 20 years, this guy's the head of the bank. This guy's the chairman of the board. And, you know, this guy runs his own hedge fund. Again, in addition to saying staying in touch with people, I think staying in touch with people you knew from college, law school and graduate school is also a good thing because most of those people are going places and you're a colleague, you're a peer, and they see you as that. And as they advance, they'll make introductions for you. And it also works the same way. As your career advances, you then have a whole bunch of people you can recommend for other things. I mean, I think that's how I've done it. And a lot of people have done it that way. And when I was really, really, really busy in the throes of my legal career, I mean, I didn't have any time to do anything except my legal practice. So it wasn't that I sat around and strategized about being on boards. I just didn't have the time. But I think the things that I did to develop my legal practice also came in handy once I got to a different stage in my career where I was much more interested in or had time available for board service because I had the relationships and I had the contacts and I had the expertise. So it's a long process. And also, you know, it's a it's a fun process and it's a good process. You meet a lot of folks. You go out to dinner, you go out for drinks, and you make a lot of new friends. And then you'll get on a board. That's not so bad. Now, you're also involved in civic and nonprofit activities. Why is that so important to you? I go back to when I said, you know, during the civil rights movement, I saw the government as a force for good and a force for change and a force for positive change that grew out of those years, you know, when you had an activist Supreme Court, you had Johnson administration, and you had the government taking a very, very active and affirmative role in addressing social issues and social problems. So that coupled with the fact that I had been a great beneficiary of a lot of these not-for-profits and a lot of the uh, government programs. And so when I got to a point in my life where I had some time, some expertise, and, you know, could make a little contribution, both financial as well as with my time and all the rest. I just thought it was very important to be in the mix and to be able to make a contribution. And if you could do something that was good and helpful to other people, then you ought to do it. And so I made that a point throughout my career. Even when I was, you know, a young lawyer trying to build my practice, and that's one of the years when I had a very thriving practice as a partner in a major firm and all that. I always spent some time, sometimes a significant amount of time, on charitable activities and not-for-profit stuff, both government and private sector. You know, I didn't sleep much, but it was a great way, I think, to give back and to, to have some influence and impact on some of these social issues. I've always done that. Made a lot of friends there, too, by the way, and a lot of good relationships and people that are important to me in my life now I've met. And the other thing about the not-for-profit sector is that you meet a different kind of person a lot of times than the people you work with every day in your profession. They see the world different. You know, they're not so bottom line oriented. They're not so, you know, they don't build by the hour. They don't see the world as one that has to be hopelessly efficient to get things done and to move on to the next project and make sure you send your bills out at the end of the month and all that. So I find those folks very, very enlightened in a way, and for me, taught me a lot about life and perspective and getting things done that would not necessarily have occurred to me in the law firm context. So there are a lot of those folks that are um, quite important to me now, just personally, as well as charitable aspects. 
And one thing I wanted to touch on, Derek, you know, especially we, we've talked about longevity and, and how do you make sure that you thrive and not just survive. And one of the things that I think about is the fact that it's not always easy. Not at all. <laughs> but people can look at you now and be like, oh, my God, he's had such a fabulous career. And, and so is there anything that you want to share about what you learned during the difficult times when it was challenging, when you really weren't sure what was going to happen in a specific situation. Is there anything you want to share about that? I think the flexibility thing, I just have always been this way. If things don't go so well, and I've had lots of setbacks, you know, saying not everything you do works out well. And so I've just been very resilient and very focused on certain set of goals. And when they don't happen, they don't occur, or they occur much later, or they don't occur the way I'd hope they occurred. You know, it's a big world out here. And if you're in an op- if you're in a market like New York, you're in a market like Washington, DC, there is an enormous amount of opportunity. Now, there's a huge amount of competition too, but there is a enormous amount of opportunity. And for, for a place like New York, if you think about it, if you have a success rate of 30%, you'll have a huge portfolio of business. If you think about the things that are presented to you on a daily basis or weekly basis, and all the opportunities, I had a huge client in the uh, 90s. Then I, I left the law for a while. I ran a bank for a while. And this guy took a different direction in his business. And we stayed in touch. But I didn't do any business for him or with him. For a long time. I think the last thing I did for him was like the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And out of the blue, last week, I get a text from him. And he's not an American. He's a South American. And he says to me, can you come and see me? So I said, well, where are you? I'm down the street. He put this proposal before me, which was a whopping proposal. I mean, it took him 45 minutes to describe it. And I thought, if we do this, this will take five or six years to get done. Enormous, enormous upside to it. But when he said to me, the last thing we did, I remember how well it worked out. And I have this other initiative now. And I thought to myself, who do I need to help make this happen? Let's talk about seeing if we can work together on this. All I'm saying is, is if you're in the mix and if you're in an environment where there's a lot of opportunity, yes, there's a lot of competition, but you will be one of the handful of people that get selected every once in a while. And so if you're in that mix, every once in a while might mean three times a year. But if the size of the projects and the interest level and the scope, you will have a very, very busy and interesting and successful career if you're in the right market and you develop the right skills. Because there's so much business out there. There's so much business out there. So keep at it. Keep at it and develop develop your set of contacts and keep those current. Because the other thing is, if I say to myself, okay, I do X amount of time, I spend X amount of time in marketing. But if you have 10 folks who you regularly keep in touch with and they know what you're up to, they might hear something. You can, you can only be in one place at a time. But if you have these other 10 folks out there, oh, Kiel, so you know, I heard about such and such thing. This sounds like this is something you'd be interested in. And I also have gotten a lot of business from, call it referral. But somebody hears about something and thinks I might be the right person for and introduces me to the person. And then you do the same thing for them. As you are networking and something that's not up your alley, when you say, oh, I know somebody this is perfect for. And people appreciate these kinds of introductions because it saves them a lot of time. It saves them the headhunter fees. It saves them everything. People love these kinds of introductions. So it should go both ways is what I'm saying. So what I'm hearing is we used to say it's not what you know, or it's not just what you know, it's also who you know. And I think to add to that is also who knows you. 
right. and who's able to right. also uh, speak on your behalf as well. Right. I'm sure you've had the same situation. You've been in a lot of situations where a name will come up. And, you know, all you can just Google the guy and get his phone number. But somebody will say, does anybody know him? Who's worked with him? That's what people know. Who knows a person? That saves everybody a lot of time. Very easy to do. On your way home, stop and have a drink with somebody for an hour. And then you go on about your business. Go home. Rest of the nights to yourself. So there's a lot of time management going around in here, too. You know, you got to get all this done. Big, there's a, a lot of opportunity out there. I appreciate that. And I think it's also very encouraging words. Now, I believe that leaders are readers. And I said, look around my office area. I have a couple of books here that I tend to go back to every now and then. Are there books that you refer to often, whether you recommend them or also give them to people? What do you suggest? I tell you what I read myself. I read a lot of history books. I read a lot of biographies. I'm interested in European history, American history, obviously, the Civil War, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement, Revolution, American Revolution. You know, anything about JFK, Churchill, FDR, Proud Red, literally everything there is on all of them. And so I read history and biography, mainly political science stuff. And I tend to give people books what I think they'll be interested in. Last Christmas, as I was standing in line at Barnes & Noble with a whole stack of books, you know how they have those books around the cash register? So yes. there was a book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. Have you heard of that? I have not heard of that one. No. Gotta read it. It's about 20 pages. It's about four lines of text on each page and illustrations. It's a parable about a boy, a mole, a fox, and a horse who all become friends. It's a wonderful book about friendship and about life and responsibility and gentleness and all those things. And I, I bought several right on the spot, but it's a wonderful book about life experience. I'll add it to my list. I like you. I tend to read mostly biographies. It was funny when you were talking about meeting with your client in Central Park and sometimes just walking. I was thinking about Steve Jobs in his biography where they talked about him doing walking meetings and things like that. I tend to mostly read biographies because I feel like a mentor is not always somebody that you see every day. Like right. I can be mentored from afar and by reading what somebody else has gone through and seeing how did they deal with that situation? What can I learn from that? And what would I do? No, I agree. The way some folks have been able to overcome adversity or manage very, very difficult situations and still stay grounded and still stay focused and, you know, and still stay human. You read that in a, in a lot of books. So it's a very good thing to do and, and very encouraging and enlightening and something that's useful in your own life. I agree with that. So, Derek, I, I know you don't have a lot of free time, per se, between the work that you do and all the different organizations that, that you're involved in. But is there anything else that you're passionate about? It could be personal. It could be professional. Is there anything else there? I want to make sure that our listeners also get to know as many sides of you as possible. So is there anything that you're passionate about? I like good food. I like good wine. I uh, play tennis in the summer. I ski in the winter. Oh, you had me at tennis. I'm a big tennis fan. Okay. I took up tennis and skiing, actually, kind of late in life. And I always wished I'd played it much, much earlier, played it as a kid. And so I have a, you know, a very erratic game. I can play a great game of tennis, and then I fold to the next one. <laughs> so, and skiing I love. I've started skiing maybe 
15, 20 years ago and love to do that every winter. It's changed the winter for me, being outside and enjoying that. Actually, one of the nice things I've been able to do recently is I've met a whole bunch of folks who run a, a series of Italian restaurants in New York, and they've gotten to be very close personal friends. So a lot of what we talked about today and a lot of things I do kind of overlap with each other in a sense that a lot of my friends are my clients. And when I talk about going and giving a great Italian restaurant and having a nice meal, oftentimes just with a client of mine who I've been friends with for 20 years, my life overlaps a lot. That would make sense to me. I definitely have conversations with people about the fact that my worlds are naturally going to collide just because time is limited. And so it just makes sense that a lot of the things that I do outside of work may have some kind of like work perspective associated with it because it's associated with finance or something like that, right? Right. But it's also an area of interest for me. Makes sense. Excellent. So Derek, we're almost at the end of our time here. Is there anything I have not covered that you would like to share with our listeners? I think we covered a lot of ground and and, um, you had some great questions, which I tried to answer. Hopefully I did. No, I think this is great, Kelsey, and happy to be able to to do this and just have a chat. You know, it's a time of kind of introspection in a way. No, I enjoyed the opportunity. Well, thank you, Derek. I have enjoyed having you on the show. And like I said, I took many notes. So definitely appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Be well. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.